In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Hi, this is Cammie. Paul Hood is our guest this week on Money Tales. Paul is a recovering tax lawyer. Among many things, he's also a prolific writer. Paul recently published his ninth book, Yours, Mine, and Ours, Estate Planning for People in Blended or Step Families. In this Money Tales conversation, Paul talks about his personal journey navigating his own blended family. Paul has two sons from his first marriage and later married again. As he shares... There have been periods where he felt like he wasn't doing enough for his current spouse while also feeling like he was never fully caught up with his kids. Paul viewed this as a damned if you do and damned if you don't situation. Paul is a sought-after speaker and consultant on tax, estate, and charitable planning. He has an innate ability to see through the complexity and explain difficult and even boring subjects in understandable and entertaining language with its insightful and biting sense of humor. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics that come up in this conversation. First, how Paul has approached money with the optimism that it will always be there because in the past, he's been able to easily earn an income. Of late, he realizes that there's some risk to this approach. Second, the importance of understanding the why of your estate plan because the decisions you make are going to impact the people who survive you. And third, the importance of knowing your own limitations when it comes to money. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, onto our conversation with Paul Hood. Hello, Money Tales listeners. This is Cami, and I'm here with my co-host, Sandy. Hello, Cami. I had a money conversation last night that I'd love to share with you. Tell, tell. I was at a school event and one of the elements was some fundraising. And I've been approached before for the school's community foundation to donate. And granted, we were in a global pandemic. So I never understood what the money was for. And I know if you went on the website, you could learn, but I always wanted someone to explain it to me simply. And I saying I'm I'm channeling Afan Omiema, who we talked to on Money Tales. And he talked about like, you know, you gotta connect with people first. And then you gotta connect the value to what the donation is. Did they do that for you last night? They did, Sandy. That's why I wanted to share. And it was the first time that they'd done that simply. And I think that's another great idea about keeping it really simple. They shared what the money would do. What does it go towards 
where our kids are in school, which I love giving for the overall school and all the kids, but gosh, I, I wanted to know how does it impact us? And they created a one pager of really simply connecting the value of this donation. And I told the lady that I spoke with how powerful that was. And we had a great conversation. She said, you know, I thought the same thing. And so I want to do this. I want to take this effort. Oh, that's great. I think there is an important lesson there, right? When we give philanthropically, we do want that connection. We want to understand that our money is going to be supporting our values and what we want to put forth into the world. Absolutely. Thanks, Sandy. Well, I'd like to welcome our guest today on Money Tells, Paul Hood. It is fantastic to have you. Well, Cammy, it's a pleasure to be here with you and Sandy. And I wanted to add into your lovely story that philanthropic drive is something that it's really different in every person. Okay. But what I have noticed at least in my world, which of course includes almost six and a half years of running a planned giving operation in higher ed, it's the ultimate motivations of people to do those things that really don't get enough attention. People think, oh, they're expected to do this or that kind of thing, but it's all about the emotions because philanthropy it has no relationship to return on investment. And unfortunately, charity doesn't work well that way. It breaks down rather quickly and people get disappointed in a hurry. And so you have to kind of say, okay, that may be a little too close to looking at the sun directly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, let's get to the ROI of the charity. You're asking a question that you may not want the answer to. Paul, great. Perfect preamble. Tells us a little bit about yourself. Would you take a moment to introduce yourself and provide two to three pivotal moments in your life that really influenced you? Okay. Well, yeah, I am a recovering tax lawyer. I knew at age 10 that that's what I wanted to do because my dad was a CPA, introduced me to a lawyer in town who had a CPA and was a lawyer. And dad said, that would be a great combination for the future. So when I quickly figured out by like age 11 <laughs> that I had no baseball talent, although it didn't stop me from playing until I was in my mid thirties, but since I was not good enough to get to the big leagues, I was like, oh, I got to do something for a living that doesn't involve physical labor. So I went and got a, an accounting degree and my law degree, and, and I didn't care about anything in law school but estate and tax, criminal, constitution. I didn't care about any of that. Just give me what I wanted. I ended up getting to do what I wanted to do from age 10. Paul, let's go back a little bit. You referenced your dad. Would you tell us more about your upbringing? Typically, the foundation of our thoughts and feelings around money stem from what was happening when we were growing up. One morning, it's about five o'clock in the morning, and dad is bringing me to the bus to go to the state fair in Shreveport, two hours away. And I had $23 in cash 
This is like 1972 to go spend all day in Shreveport at the fair with my seventh grade class. As we get closer to the parking lot where the bus is being dropped off, he says, well, in case you need this, here's another five. And then it was another five. And by the time I got out of the car, this money handout started within a mile of the parking lot. Compounding in a new way. It did. When I got out of the car, I had $48. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I went into the car with $23. But you know what? That did not always do me well. Because my dad was always there, bailing out, paying for everything. And I don't think that I ever... Well, I can tell you this. I know people who would vote for this. I've always been sort of a footloose and fancy free. That's the Cajun part of my blood makeup. The Cajun people are pretty fun, loving, hard driving group. And it's live for today. I always generate a lot of money and I always spend a lot of money. And at the end of the day, it was nothing left, but we had a hell of a time. You know what I'm saying? I remember this one time, and this was the only time I ever got my dad. There's a restaurant in New Orleans, my favorite restaurant in New Orleans on Bourbon Street named Galatois. And I've known the Galatois family forever. And in the old days, Galatois didn't take reservations, and they didn't take credit cards. He didn't walk in without a jacket on either. One night, my parents were in New Orleans, and we were going to the Sanger Theater for a show. So let's go eat at Galatoire's. We walk into Galatoire's. Dad goes to pull his card out. I'm like, Dad, what are you doing? He said, what do you mean? I said, they don't take credit cards at Galatoire's. But I had a house account. And I grabbed the bill, (laughs) put my house account number and signed the bill and gave a tip to it. I I took care of it, Dad. (laughs) Only time I ever got it. (laughs) Paul, tell us about that, because it's very interesting. Your dad, it sounds like throughout your childhood, was giving you money, making sure you had more than enough. Going back to the fair, for instance, what were you telling yourself as your dad is just putting more and more money in your hands? You know... I kept thinking, I don't need this. I don't need this. And you know what? I spent every last (laughs) Of course you did. It's the fair. (laughs) That's exactly right. I spent $48 at the fair. And he just sent me with $148. I just spent that too. (laughs) So you're just having fun. You're enjoying it. And so then years later, you get to Galatoire's and you pay for dinner. Exactly. Finally get to do it once. (laughs) And what did that feel like? That was actually pretty satisfying because my dad was one. It was tough to get one over on him. We were very, very different people. He was very quiet. But when he said something, it was usually profound and often hilarious. I mean, he would flat shake you up. And the whole time we're driving close to the doggone shopping center parking lot for the bus to take us to Shreveport, 
yeah, I keep <laughs> keeps laying five dollar bills. How many more of those you got? <laughs> Let's empty you out before, <laughs> before I get out of this car. Paul, what was it like when you began to execute on this dream that you had at age 10 of becoming a tax attorney? Which sounds so much like taxidermy. <laughs> but entirely different. Let's be clear, it's a tax attorney. Might not be different. Well, you know what? I don't know. Sometimes if you if you spend too much time looking at the internal revenue code, you wish you were in taxidermy without doubt. Now I think that from my standpoint, never having to worry about because my father was a very, very poor man growing up as a kid. In fact, so poor that he wouldn't talk about it. We know about his childhood from his younger brother, who was 11 years younger. My dad's parents divorced in the early 40s. Wayne tells stories about them hiding under the bed when the landlord came for the rent and leaving places in the middle of the night. They lived in like 60-something cities in Tennessee, Louisiana, and Texas over like a three-year period. My grandmother was second-grade educated. My grandfather was third-grade out of the hills of Tennessee. He was a butcher, and she was a waitress. But my dad, we were never going to worry about anything. And in fact, the only thing I remember about what we could or could not do or eat dad banned white beans at our house because that's what he ate every day and he says we will never serve white beans in this house and that was his only rule you didn't violate that rule paul when you were done with your degrees I would assume at that point, maybe your money relationship had changed from footloose and fancy free or whatever the term you used, this just make it and spend it because you're now, you're, not, you're a lawyer, you're a tax professional. Where were you at that point? What was your relationship with money at that time? I was as irresponsible with it as I was before. Did it ever change? No, <laughs> I haven't changed to this day. And you know what? It's a mistake. Assuming that you will continue to get paid at a good rate for what you do. I haven't had a full-time job working for somebody else for almost five years. Okay. So you're like, well, he's an optimist. I mean, he's obviously out there hustling and doing this and that and writing books and doing webinars and that kind of thing. But the bottom line is, that <laughs> is always going to be there. You know, it's not always going to be there, but it, that's the way I kind of view it. Your approach is it will always be there, but you know that it won't. I'm obviously in denial about that. It's kind of like people, if you look at mortality and mortality salience, for example, in, in the psychological context of estate planning, people often think that, yeah, while we're all going to die, we all have second doubts about whether we're going to die. 
Freud makes this point in several statements. Like down deep, we're all not sure that we're not going to be the first one to outlive the tables, for example. And as you know, I mean, I've written and talked extensively about the psychology of estate planning. My favorite was always when people would say, if I die, like, stop, time out. <laughs> if, <laughs> when, when you die, okay? It's not this if business. There's no if here, okay? It's going to happen. At some point, it's going to happen. You're like everybody else. There's no if. Because you see, for me, the key in estate planning is understanding that it has therapeutic and non-therapeutic impacts. And you've got to help the client manage the non-therapeutic implications to get them the benefits. And the best illustrated benefit was the scene in Moby Dick. When the boat's being thrashed about by the whale and Ahab goes into the base of the boat and signs his holographic will. And he says it was like a stone rolled away from my heart. And I've seen people experience this, and I know you have too. When people do something significant in their estate planning, even if it's to sign their wills only, there is a benefit there that you can get people to if you can manage the, the shoals of the mortality salience and some of the other fears that people have. Paul, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. When we talk with clients, we often talk about how there's two sides of money. There's the technical side, which all of us are trained in, and then there's the emotional side of money. And that's what you're talking about. And I'm curious about how you became aware of the emotional side of money first in your career because it's not something that's taught in law school. You're exactly right. And unfortunately, it's discouraged. I became interested in it really about the same time as my interest in the blended family arena. I used to invariably tell people I practice psychotherapy without a license because there was a lot of truth to that. Hey, Paul, real quick for our listeners, a blended family. What does that mean? A blended family, you can use the term step family. A blended family is simply, and some of them don't blend very well. Mine was a perfect example of that. It's where not all of the descendants of the couple are shared. Okay, so if one of them has a child or a grandchild, who is not the child or the grandchild of the other partner, that's a blended family. And like I said, some people say, well, you know, they don't blend them very well. Well, that's true. But then there are some people who don't like the term step because it has a negative pejorative to it. So I go back and forth, to be honest with you. I probably say blended more than I say step, but either one of them. Neither one of them is great, but they're the two we have. Paul, I'm curious. Have you looked at the statistics recently of looking across American families, how many are blended? Because I would think that the percentage is, is quite high. Actually, Sandy, since the 2010 census, the United States census, 
the blended family is the most common form of family. Literally, Ozzy and Harriet and Leave It to Beaver have been <laughs> supplanted by the Brady Bunch. And really, the Brady Bunch is probably the first entree of American societal implications for a blended family. Mike, with his three young guys, marries Carol with her three young girls. <laughs> they bring along Alice, and here we have the Brady Bunch. They were so happy, too. That's right. But the point is, is that that was repeated in the 2020 census. My next book is on estate planning for unmarried couples, because that is the fastest growing demographic segment of the relationship community. Let me tell you, the working title of the book is it's estate planning for unmarried couples, the wild, wild west of estate planning. You've got everything out there. I mean, think about it. You got a couple who aren't married. Well, where do you live? Well, we live part time in Seattle and part time in San Francisco. Then you start worrying about whether they're either one of them is going to try to claim a common law spouse status after the first one dies, even if that's not what the other one wanted. So then you start thinking about how to negate all of that. Yeah, it gets tricky quick. It does. So I'm curious, Paul, you're in the professional money conversation business. What techniques do you use to help people talk about money productively? I believe in having the deeper conversations with people about Really not just how their plans are working, but why is it set up like this? I'm great with people who want to know the answer to the whys, because that's what I'm all about is trying to figure that out with them. And I can't just tell them, oh, this is how you should set it up. Well, I don't know your family well enough to know whether that's a good idea or not. So you take the technical side of the how and you reverse engineer by saying, why did you do it this way? Exactly. I'm motivated really by one life-changing experience. And it was when a client asked me, she says, I don't have much time left. I've done nothing. And she was 93. And she said, I need your last best advice. She goes, the advice you'd consider so compelling that you would impart it to me on your deathbed. What's your last best advice, counselor? And I was 36, and I was a sole practitioner, and I had more work than I could do, and this lady had basically just shut me up. And I started stammering through an answer, and I realized she don't care about taxes. Yeah, her estate's bigger than $10 million, but her broker just told me, She's going to give about 85% of it to charity. There may be some estate tax. This was back when the exemption was still only 600000 But she don't care about tax. So what I finally did was I stumbled. This is what I told her. 
your estate planning decisions are going to impact the relationships of those who survive you. Now, those impacts can be positive or negative. It's up to you to think about it. I said, that's probably the best advice I can give you. What I ended up doing with it was I realized that I needed a statement of my estate planning beliefs and philosophies. And I have one. It's on my LinkedIn page and on my website. Hey, Paul, you said you have a blended family. How have you and your spouse talked with your children about money? Well, there haven't been any direct talks involving her with the boys because of the rancor of the separation. They were told that it was her fault when that was not true. So it was a totally different dynamic. What can you do about that? Really not much. Sadly, that was what it was. So you talk separately with them. Exactly. How's that gone? It's been hit and miss on both sides. You're never doing enough for your current spouse. And then you're never fully caught up with your kids. So you're kind of in a damned if you do and damned if you don't kind of situation. And that's kind of the way I viewed it most of the time. I mean, thankfully, the boys have been majors for a while now. and I don't have to deal with it. That was always the low point of my day. If I had to speak to, to her, I, I cringed. I didn't want to do that. And it's really tough to be in that situation. It was, especially for somebody who is freely giving as I am. I give till it hurts. I'll give you the last dollar in my bank account if I think you need it more than me. It's just a fault I have, but it's just who I am. Paul, have you been able to bridge that divide that happened? It sounds like quite a while ago. Mm, I wish I could say that, (laughs) but uh, the bottom line is I, I need supervision when it comes to money. Like the old Clint Eastwood, you know, a good man has to know his limitations. Well, my limitations are I'll bring in the money, let somebody else run the money, and then everything will work out just fine. But if you let Live for Today Paul run it, we ain't going to have any money. You're going to go to the fair and you're going to have a lot of fun. (laughs) We're going to have a great time, but we don't have any money. Understanding our limitations is a really powerful gift. Well, it is. And I I do understand mine. Paul, what advice would you give to listeners out there who might be navigating their own blended family situations where conversations can be tough? Not everyone's getting along or there's some sort of blockage. My heart always goes out to those situations. I think the best advice, and unfortunately, I was given this advice and I disregarded it and I paid dearly for it. So the advice is essentially this. Do not 
talk negatively about your ex to your kids, even if it simply involves telling them the truth about their parent. They're not interested in it. They have made a decision to back you, or in my case, her, and anything you tell them is not going to be given any credibility. See, when my boys became majors, I decided that I had to have justice, and I had to tell them how rotten and unsupportive a partner their mother had been. I went looking for justice and ended up with just me because my boys cut me off and I didn't have a relationship with them for four years. So you go looking for justice, you might find yourself with just me. And that was where I was. I got unfriended, unblocked. When they want you out today, they can put you out. That's hard, but really valuable advice. You want to have everything that's right, but life's not fair. I wish it was fair, but it's not. And in that case, the child has made a decision. They have picked a side, and you got to respect that, whether they're right or not, even if you know they're not right. And in my case, I know that they're not right. But for them, they are. They are. It's irrelevant. It's what I believe is irrelevant, unfortunately. And Paul, I'm curious, how did money play a role in any of this? Because money can be a force that helps, but it can also be a divisive force. It can be a way for people to get retribution, to attack. You're exactly right. Money can be used as vicious control. Dance for your supper, in essence. I think that money did play a role here, in my case, because I was paying for all these things, but didn't have a relationship with the boys, but I was still paying. By paying, do you mean child support or spousal support? Child support, allowances, cars. All the things that you pay for when you have kids. What did that feel like? Well, you feel like you're being used. Ultimately, that's what it felt like. You're like, okay, I'm doing this because I brought children into the world and I committed to do this and I do what I commit to. So that's what I did. But when you don't get much in the way of reciprocation, like zero reciprocation. It's an expectation. Okay. That's what this is. <laughs> That's what this is. And so when the boys grew up and became adults or became majors, as you were referring to earlier, did the money aspect of the relationship change significantly? No, I was a source, just a source. Paul, this is intense. So this last question might be, hard one to answer because maybe there's many money conversations to be had, but what's your next money conversation going to be and who is it going to be with? 
I know who it should be with. It should be with me. It should be we got to figure out some way to let somebody else run the money. And maybe one day that'll happen. It certainly should happen. And at this point in my life, I would turn it over willingly. Whereas in the past, that wasn't always true. I wanted control over it all, but I realized I'm not good at it. So what's holding you back from this conversation? Well, I don't know that anything's necessarily holding it back. It's like, who am I going to have it with? That's the issue. How am I going to get that done? What kind of relationship is going to be involved? An honest, open, deep one. A professional. That's exactly right. You want to make sure that you select somebody who is actually going to do what they're supposed to do. Paul, thank you for trusting us in this conversation, for your open and honest and raw sharing. For your humor, it was so fantastic to spend this time with you on Many Tales. Thank you, Paul. Well, thank y'all. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.